Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. From the time Robin Cho's DNA was a match for DNA found at the scene of the Koreatown murders, this case has been about one thing, and one thing only. DNA led police to show The The DNA was the linchpin. The DNA brought the case back to life. Investigators retested genetic material on the latex Explained the DNA issue. This DNA evidence. This is just a DNA kind of situation. They just had DNA. DNA. So when we discovered there was additional DNA found at the scene that had never been tested, we knew we had a real opportunity. Could this new evidence solve the mystery at the center of this case? Or will it close the book on Robin Cho's pleas of innocence? So now, on the season finale of Strangeland, we get the results. What will the new DNA test say? I'm Ben Adair. And I'm Sharon Choi. You're listening to Strangeland, Season 1, The Koreatown Murders. This is Episode 10, The Results. So, as we talked about in the last episode, Sharon, the mitochondrial DNA testing that we're doing on these hairs that were found at the crime scene, it takes a long time, over a month. So, before we get into those results, let's talk about the very latest with Cho's case. Because even though all his appeals have been denied, there's still stuff happening, right? Yes. Cho has exhausted all his appeals at this point. But recently, he's done something new a sort of fourth-quarter Hail Mary for prisoners convicted of crimes they say they didn't commit. He submitted his case to the California Innocence Project, which is run out of California Western School of Law in San Diego. So, he submitted it. Does that mean they're taking it up? Well, it's a multi-step process. We get requests for assistance, new requests for assistance, anywhere from, like... 1,200 to 2,000 new requests for assistance every single year. This is Mike Semanchik. He's the managing attorney at the California Innocence Project. We'll do, we'll actually do some sort of review and maybe half of those. So 600 to 1,000 cases get a, a review. Wow, I gotta say, I wouldn't like those odds if I were applying. Yeah, me neither. And that just gets you to the first review. 
That review involves collecting some documents, some legal documents from this uh, prospective client, as well as having them fill out a questionnaire. Of those, you know, the 50% that uh, we're doing a review on, I'd say the vast majority of those, maybe 80% of that number, we're just not going to to do anything with it. We're not going to devote any investigative resources to. And it's mainly because it's either impossible to prove or we think that the system, you know, got it right. So where is Cho's case right now? Cho made it past that initial screening and made it past the first review. Right now, his case is quote-unquote under review. The lawyers think there could be something to it. So they're collecting all the evidence, the discovery, and doing research to see if Cho has a strong enough case to move forward. So it's not like they are moving forward. They're just figuring it all out right now. So what happens next? So the California Innocence Project said they wouldn't talk specifics about Cho's case. And Cho told us that, as his lawyers, they were telling him not to talk specifics either. They have their process, and they're worried that Cho might say something that would make it harder for him and his case. Sure, makes sense. So in general then, what types of things are they looking for when they're trying to get an innocent person out of prison? According to Symantec, there's a lot of things that used to be considered strong evidence that just aren't anymore. Things like eyewitness testimony, jailhouse informants, and junk science like bite mark analysis. Or typewriter analysis? Maybe. They also look at the lawyers involved in cases. So if the defense attorney who lost the case was later disbarred, or if a prosecutor was found to have routinely committed prosecutorial misconduct, that might raise a flag for the California Innocence Project as well. And the last thing they're looking for, this might sound familiar to you, Ben, but they love finding DNA. Honestly, DNA is actually probably the easiest way to prove a person's innocence. And we're lucky when that evidence still exists and is in a testable condition. Of course, the California Innocence Project can't just call up a DNA lab and ask them to retest everything, like journalists can. Everything has to move through the courts, which means judges and district attorneys have to be involved, which means everything takes a very long time. Sometimes the investigating agency won't tell us what exists. Sometimes the crime lab won't tell us what exists, and it all just depends on the location and and the person you're dealing with on a given day. So if that's the case, then we have to file a motion in court just to find out if something exists. And that can take, you know, six months before the court gets the time to rule on the motion. So even though the actual DNA testing might not take that long, getting it all through the process does. I guess I'm just left wondering, like, how long does this whole process take? If they have to deal with uncooperative DAs or judges, that would add even more time to the whole thing. So... On average, how long does it take for them to fully work and process a case? So, like you said, it depends a lot on the context. The typical case will be investigated for at least a few years in our office before it's ultimately agreed by the staff that this is something that we want to fully litigate in court. And that would be because we not only believe that they're innocent, but we have the ability to prove it. I'll say this, the average time that a person spends in prison before they're ultimately exonerated, and this is a nationwide figure, is 16 years. And that's the average, so you got to figure 50% more, 50% less. 
That's a long time. It is. Now, again, because we don't know the specifics of the California Innocence Project's work on Robin Cho's case, we have no idea where they are in this timeline. So if Robin Cho's innocent, and if the California Innocence Project feels they can make the case, then they'll fully take him on as a client, and then it could be years, a decade maybe, before anything gets resolved? That's a lot of ifs, and a lot of years. And given what we know about his health, all the problems he's having? Sharon, Robin Cho needs a game changer. If, in fact, he did not do these crimes, he needs something like new evidence that really boosts his claims of innocence. Which is what we might have in a vial at the Serological Research Institute right now. But this evidence might also tell the world, yes, he did this. Well, let's figure this out. Will the new DNA tests performed on the hairs found at the crime scene help Robin Cho's case? Or will they undermine all his claims of innocence, show us that the jury got it right? The results of the DNA test are in, and they're coming up right after the break. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. So, it's finally time, Ben. It's time to get the results from Serological Research Institute's new tests on the previously untested hair samples in the Robin Cho case. So, like we mentioned in the last episode, there were hairs collected at the scene of the crime that stuck out to investigators as having evidentiary value. But because their roots had dried up, they were deemed unsuitable for the most precise kind of DNA testing, nuclear testing. And that was that. Until we had Siri run mitochondrial analysis on the hairs. And Angela Butler, senior forensic DNA analyst at Siri, not only had the hair samples, she also had two reference samples, one from Therese Hong and one from Robin Cho. So that means if any of these samples match to Robin Cho, we will know it. We will also know if any of these hairs do not match to Cho. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, Ben. Nice to see you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So you, me, we all got on Zoom with Butler to go over the results. But before we go any further, I want to remind everyone of what mitotesting can and can't say. What mitotesting is really good at is excluding people. 
But overall, the results are less precise than nuclear DNA testing. And part of the reason for that has to do with mitochondrial DNA itself. MitoDNA is handed down through the mother, which means you'll never get an exact match to a person, but instead get a match for anyone directly related through mothers. So in this case, if one of the samples matched to the victim Cherie Song, the mother, then it would also match to her son that was killed, to her son that wasn't killed, and to her mother, who also spent time in the apartment. But it would not match to the nanny who was killed or to Byung Song, her husband. Let's start with the results, and we'll just dive straight in. Okay. So first of all, were all the tests successful or no? Uh, There was only one sample that did not give any mitochondrial sequence results. Four samples and only results from three of the four. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. That's too bad. So for the first item that did generate results, item 1R, do we know what kind of hair that is? According to the information that was submitted at the time of analysis, it was labeled as originating uh, from a, that it was a pubic hair. Pubic hair, okay. I mean, I guess it's a bathroom, so there may be pubic hairs in the bathroom. Not unexpected, yeah. Yeah. So what was the result of item 1R? Okay, so the results indicated that the mitochondrial DNA sequence obtained from the hair is the same as the mitochondrial DNA sequence from Therese or someone of her maternal lineage. So that would also include um, any sons, um, her mother, her grandmother. They would all look identical as far as their mitochondrial sequence goes. So just to be clear... Item 1R is not Robin Cho? Correct. So how about the second one, 2R? Do we know what kind of hair 2R was? Uh, It was labeled as a dark brown scalp hair. And uh, those results are the same as the pubic hair. So in other words, it has the same mito sequence as Shreese and anybody of her maternal lineage. So again, not a match for Robin Cho? Correct. Okay. So this is, I mean, so far we've done two of the three that resulted and both of the results were matching the victim or a relative of the victim. So no new information here, really. Correct. So how about 3R? Do we know what kind of hair item that one is? Uh, 3R uh, is also a dark brown scalp hair. Okay. Okay. Um, And again, um, I just want to make it clear that I didn't receive the actual hairs to do the examination. Somebody, a hair examiner or someone identified them as a pubic hair or a scalp hair. That wasn't something that I did. Mm -hmm. Got it. So uh, number three was also a scalp hair. And um, the results here, Robin Cho and Cherise are excluded as contributors to the results from that hair. So in other words, the mitochondrial DNA sequence is different than those two individuals. So Cho isn't a match. He's excluded from this new evidence. Right. He's not excluded from the crimes. The DNA found on the gloves is still a match. But after analyzing this new evidence, there's nothing more that links him. 
So we have these results. What can we do with them? Turns out, just like there's a database for nuclear DNA results, there's a database for mitoDNA results. It's called MPOP, but it's different in a few key ways. First, it's much smaller, only about 40,000 samples in the whole database. Second, samples are contributed anonymously, no individual names. Third, mitoDNA can be shared over regions and populations. So researchers use the database to look at how sequences occur in large groups of people. So when Siri put the mystery hair into MPOP, they did get some results. So we ran that one through the database and there were no direct hits, meaning an exact match. There were seven hits that had one, basically had one difference in the sequence. Again, not a direct sequence match. So they call it neighboring sequence. And so you could go and look and see the breakdown and say, okay, of those seven, where are these people coming from? Where, what characteristics? And four sam- there were four hits in Korea, and there were three hits in the United States that originated or identified with Eastern Asia. So that is the closest match to that profile. So we said goodbye to Butler with the knowledge that it was probably a Korean hair or a Korean-American hair, but not much else. Siri would need more reference samples and more information to include or exclude more people. It's an interesting result. This unknown hair, it could be anyone. It could be the third victim, Unsuk Min. It could be the husband, Byung Song. I mean, it could be Scott Song or Jay Lee, the names from the tip letter. Right. But we do know one thing that's really important. We know that it does not match Robin Cho. So where does this leave us, Sharon, in your opinion? Because in my opinion, I got to say, this is still one of the weirdest, strangest, most bizarre cases I've run across. And after everything we've learned... I'm not sure I've seen anything that really helps me answer the fundamental mystery of whether or not Robin Cho committed this triple homicide. What do you think? Well, I guess this is where the work of the California Innocence Project will begin. Their process does take a long time, but they're thorough. And maybe with their powers as attorneys, they can overturn more rocks and find out more information. So here's where I've ended up. The prosecutor did prove, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Robin Cho's gloves were at the crime scene. His gloves. I still think about those fragments. They were just so large and so obvious. I can't get around the idea that any killer who's wearing gloves in the first place would have left those behind. But did the prosecutor prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Robin Cho was at the crime scene? Robin Cho himself? I don't know. The fact that the cops discovered nothing else to link Robin Cho to these crimes, either at the scene or in their investigation, makes me think, no. If I'm being honest, I don't think he was there. Okay, that's a really good point. We do know for sure that his gloves were there. But was he there? 
I mean, Sharon, you're right in that there is nothing else concretely tying him to these crimes. But if I'm being honest, I still can't quite get around something that Angela Butler said in the last episode, that only Robin Cho's DNA was found on the gloves. No additional person. So that means that someone must have found his gloves, stolen his gloves, and without wearing them, planted his gloves at the crime scene. That just, I mean, it sounds like something out of a movie, something that would never happen in real life. Again, I know I've said this before. Yes, it's possible, but is it believable? Not to me. Well, Ben, what would it take? What would you need to be convinced? You know, I think I need one of two things. One, I would need a more plausible explanation from Robin Cho about his gloves or his whereabouts or anything that would help me come over to his side. But I mean, here's the tricky thing. If he is innocent, then that day was just like a totally unremarkable day when three people happened to get murdered in his apartment building. And he really doesn't have any information about it or his gloves. Why would he? So really, if he's innocent, I don't think he'd be able to say anything at all that would convince us. Okay, what's the second thing then? The second thing is someone new. A new DNA hit leading to a new suspect, new information about Scott Song or Jay Lee if they actually exist, or anyone who would possibly link to these crimes. I think that's what it's going to take. You know, we, we heard the prosecutor's story about these crimes. It's not convincing. We know Robin Cho's story of these crimes, and it's not convincing either. We need a new story, one that none of us know right now. And I think that's what it's going to take to change my mind. And I think there are people out there who can help us figure this out. I know I, I said it as kind of a fake out on episode one, but now really is a good time to ask all of you listening out there if you have any information about Robin Cho that you think we should know, if you have any information about other potential suspects in this case. Scott Song, Jay Lee, or anyone else. You can go to our website, strangelandpodcast.com, and send us an email or call our tip line. And leave us a message. Again, our website is strangelandpodcast.com. We'll be back to let you know everything we find out. There are so many more things we've learned as we've taken this first trip through Strangeland, investigating this case. And not just about Robin Cho and the Koreatown murders. Coming up, our final verdict on what this story means and what it could mean for Robin Cho. And that's right after the break. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Adidas, Elf Cosmetics, and Lego. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals. During Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th, the cash back rates are even bigger. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app, R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. 
Water soluble plant food from Miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. You know, Ben, since we started working on this story, there are a few things that have been keeping me up at night. One of them is something Robin Cho's brother, Charlie Cho, said to me when I first interviewed him. I asked him if he had experienced any language or cultural barriers over the course of his brother's legal battle. He said yes, there were so many cultural barriers, and the biggest of them all was the whole court system itself. The court provided translators every step of the way, but even still, the Cho's just didn't know anything about how the courts operated. And so they had to follow whatever the court told them to do. And they had no idea if any of that would actually be beneficial to Robin Cho's case. This is something I've been wondering about, too, as we've been telling this story. Court is such a weird place. Even for people who've grown up here, watching CSI or Law & Order, the real thing is, it's like its own subculture, where if you don't know the rules or how to play the game, you're just completely lost. Look, just imagine, someone in your family is accused of committing a serious crime, and they're waiting for their trial, where they might be condemned to death row. That must be a really scary experience. And then imagine that you don't speak the language, you don't understand the culture, and you can't really communicate with the people who are directly involved in the case. Can you imagine how awful that must be? Yeah, I mean, even with, even with interpreters, it's like they're just telling you the words, but there's this whole culture, there's all these things you have to be doing that nobody's telling you about. You'd feel lost, just completely, totally lost. And we're not even talking about the money yet. What do you mean, the money? Well, something that came up a lot as we were reporting was the idea of money. How much the Cho's could afford in putting on Robin Cho's defense. Mm. Bona Cho told me that money was a factor in who they chose as their lawyers or how much they could pay for experts. George Little, the defense investigator hired by the Flyers, he said he felt that he didn't have nearly the budget he needed to fully investigate the Cho case. Private eyes, it turns out, can be really expensive. Wow. So resources for putting on your case, defending yourself, telling your story in court, they can be really limited. They can be. Private eyes cost money. Experts cost money. Lawyers cost money. Compare that to the abundance of resources the state has in putting on its case. I'm thinking right now about the 10 fingerprint analysts the prosecution put on, the seven forensic document examiners. Exactly. It's funny, you know, it, it relates very closely to something that Leslie Boyce, the appellate attorney, said to me when I interviewed her. She talked a lot about how, in her view, trial is like a Broadway show. A Broadway show. She kept saying that. It's like a Broadway show. And I didn't fully understand what she meant until she said this. It's a story. Trial's two competing stories. So you've got the prosecution putting on their story through the mouths of witnesses. And it's a story that they try to show as compelling as possible to say, guilty, he's guilty. Robin Cholo's guilty. So 83 witnesses took the stand for prosecution. Seven total witnesses 
took the stand for defense. So I'm basically saying most of the six weeks was taken up with the prosecution side of the story. Very little was taken up with the defense side of the story. So Boyce's Broadway show metaphor is an interesting way to think about a trial. Because as we know, Broadway shows are really expensive. And in this case, the two stories, seems like they came in at very different price points. You know, if I had to guess, I'd bet the prosecution show cost a ton more than Cho's defense. I mean, 83 witnesses to seven. And you know, when I talked with people who covered trials in the U.S., they've told me this sort of thing isn't really surprising to hear. They say this kind of imbalance happens a lot. And I just keep thinking back to what we were saying about the Cho family, how scary and unfamiliar this whole situation must have been to them. And they're up against this system that has so many resources at its disposal. So Sharon, you said there are a few things keeping you up at night. What else? It's something that Leslie Boyce said at the end of episode six about the difference between true innocence and true guilt and trial innocence and trial guilt. It's so interesting, and I think I agree. Those are very different things. Look, the courts are not perfect. The system makes mistakes. Sometimes innocent people are found guilty at trial, and sometimes guilty people are found innocent. To me, it just goes to show that this system is not the ultimate arbiter of truth. I agree, but it also seems like that's exactly what you'd say if you're a criminal defense attorney and you have to spend most of your time defending people who may be guilty, true guilt, of doing indefensible things. Well, there is someone who categorically disagrees with the whole idea of trial innocence and trial guilt. The prosecutor in this case. The district attorney's role is to seek truth and justice. This is Frank Santoro again. And I I think people don't understand this. And I don't mean anything negative to the defense attorneys in any way, but we have very different jobs. A defense attorney's job is defend their client no matter what. It doesn't matter if he's innocent. It doesn't matter if he's guilty. The defense attorney's job is to do what that client wants. The district attorney is unique. We have a different role. My job is to seek truth and justice. If that truth and justice leads towards innocence, then we don't prosecute the case. We let the person out. We would never, ever go forward on a case we didn't think the person wasn't guilty. And if if the evidence does lead towards guilt, then we go forward. So it's it's sort of a pet peeve of mine right now where you're hearing DAs and prosecutors lumped with defense attorneys as all of us being part of justice attorneys, justice lawyers. Well, we're not. I'm the prosecutor. I'm seeking justice. You're doing what's best for your client. They're they're two different things. Huh. That's interesting. He sees himself in a very different light. But still, I gotta wonder, how many cases come across his desk where he's read them, studied the evidence, gone through everything the cops and detectives collected, and then thought, nope, This doesn't make sense. This guy seems innocent to me. Let's let him go. It's a good question. So I looked into it. In the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, there are lawyers whose job it is to decide if a suspect should be charged in a case. They're called filing attorneys. So let's say a filing attorney looks at all the evidence the cops have collected and decides you should be charged with a crime. That's when your case would be sent to someone like Frank Santoro. 
that's when the trial attorney starts reviewing it. So it's not like just any lame case is arriving on his desk. They've been vetted by a filing attorney and then passed on to him. Right. But just because a filing attorney has vetted a case doesn't mean a prosecutor has to take it. So we asked Santoro if he had ever seen a case and thought, nope, this shouldn't move forward. No, no, because, you know, well, first, I've never had that. Has it happened? I'm sure it has. I've heard of that happening. I've heard of DAs going to their supervisors. I've heard of cases being dismissed. Um, I've just personally never had it. Huh. So he's been how many years as a prosecutor? 23. So either the filing district attorneys in Los Angeles are really, really good at only recommending cases worth pursuing or... Yeah. But even still, when you look at this case and when you listen to Frank Santoro, even when you listen to the detectives McCartan and Shamlian in earlier episodes, I think they're all being super honest. I really think they believe that Robin Cho committed these murders, even if it is just the glove fragments and only the glove fragments that connect him to the crime. The lack of other evidence doesn't dissuade them from this idea. But Ben, it's worth really thinking about how they reached that conclusion in the first place, or what guides them there. Here, let's listen to Santoro again. This is him describing how he came to his conclusions on the Cho case. So with this case, you read this case, which is thousands of pages of discovery. You, you're taking notes, you're highlighting stuff, maybe you're creating a PowerPoint of your opening and closing at the same time, and you're literally picking out all the significant things you need to tell the jury. And that, that is just my process. And when you look at all those significant things, they add up and really tell this story of a man who led two lives, he led a complete double life, was completely sort of sociopath in my mind, and was the sophisticated, evil, lying, desperate man who basically took a desperate action and went to these people's apartment to see what he can find. And I think that, and that's how he led to a murder. And that's how it happened. So even when he's reading the discovery and going through the evidence, he's already forming his argument that he's going to make in front of the jury, how he's going to try to convince them to convict. It doesn't sound like he's considering, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't quite add up. And it feels very similar to what we talked about in episode eight. How when some forensic analysts are led to believe certain things, their conclusions tend to follow those beliefs, those suggestions. This is confirmation bias, and it seems to just be everywhere in the system. Factor in the uneven resources, and it's not hard to see how people can really get trapped in the system. Look, Sharon, we can't know for sure what's in people's hearts and minds. And again, I don't think... Anyone here is a bad actor. Everyone we've met in this story seems to be doing what they think is the right thing on this case. The prosecutor is still pushing guilt. The defense attorneys are still going to bat for their former client. The family is still hoping for a miracle. And Robin Cho is still fighting for his release. Everyone here is pushing for justice. What they see as justice. How each person defines it. But the one thing we can't know, the one thing that seems almost impossible to know, is what's in Robin Cho's heart. Without new evidence, new leads, or new witnesses, on one side or the other, 
It seems like the truth in this case will forever be unknowable. And so that means the story is ending with either a great tragedy, a huge miscarriage of justice, or exactly the way it should, with Robin Cho in prison for life. There is one last thing that keeps me up at night, Ben, and that's thinking about the victims, about Cherise Hong, Eunsik Min, and the toddler, the two-year-old. He would have been 20 this year if he was still alive. Pyong Song, the husband and father of two of the victims, wouldn't talk to us for this podcast, but we know he's still working in the garment industry. He's tried to put all this behind him, but obviously, his life was changed forever. And these murders didn't just affect the Songs. There's also the Cho family, his brother Charlie, his wife Bona, and her sons. Regardless of whether or not Robin chose guilty, their lives also changed permanently. For most people living in Koreatown, the Miracle Mile murders, or the Miracle Mile massacre, has faded into memory. But for these victims, those who lost their lives and those who survived them, the story will never go away. Again, if you have any information that can help us, please check out strangelandpodcast.com. There's an email and a phone number there. It's easy to get in touch. We will keep you updated as we find out more. And we hope to be back for additional seasons of Strangeland, looking at this place where crime, culture, and justice collide. Strangeland is an Audio Chuck original produced by Western Sound, hosted by me, Sharon Choi. And me, Ben Adair. Strangeland was created by Ben Adair. Executive producers are Ashley Flowers and Delia D'Ambra for Audio Chuck, and Ben Adair for Western Sound. Strangeland was written by Sharon Choi, Cameron Kell, and Dan Leone. Senior producer is Cameron Kell. Co-producers are Sharon Choi, Dan Leone, and Savannah Wright. Our fact checker is Asaura Aceves. Original composition and sound design is by Alex McGinnis. Lots more about this ongoing investigation, including photos from the story and behind the scenes, all on our website, strangelandpodcast.com. Strangeland Podcast. All one word. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Uh